Welcome to the last lap podcast. Welcome to the last lap podcast. Welcome everybody to the Last Lap Podcast. The Last Lap Podcast, very much like a drawing silver to, uh, a drawing Silverstone track, only good in places. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm your host Andrew Pearson, and alongside me, as always, is my co-host Sean Gray. Hello. And today we'll be taking a quick look at the British Grand Prix. Bless you, ma'am. It's the British Grand Prix. Talk about history. Although there have been Grand Prix before, the official Formula One World Championship started in 1950, and the inaugural race was here at Silverstone. Over the years since, it's moved about a bit to Aintree and Brands Hatch, and Silverstone itself has undergone many changes. Most recently for the 2010 season, where the track became the 3.661 mile layout that we currently know, also creating a new pit complex and moving the start-finish point. Sadly meaning that the high-speed Cops corner, although still part of the circuit, is no longer Turn 1. Speaking of Cops, it's one of 18 corners here. Other no notable names include the fast-flowing Maggots and Beckett section. Tricky, but essential to get right if you're going to get near the current lap record of 1.33.4 set by Mark Webb's Red Bull in 2013. For notable moments here, although the weather may be inconsistent, one thing is always the same the fans. The grandstands were half empty at best last week in Austria, no danger of that here. The Sky Sports race preview show took place on the pit straight in front of a packed grandstand on Thursday, and the race itself is always a sellout, with the crowd noticeably audible, audible even over the sound of the cars. Other moments from Silverstone's recent past include, include a crazy man getting onto the circuit and running down the middle of the hangar straight towards the cars in 2003. Schumacher broke his legs here in 1999. Vettel and Alonso had an epic battle in 2014. And for some reason, an image that's always stayed with me was Jarno Trulli's crash in 2004, flipping his Renault in every possible direction and leaving a trail of destruction not seen this side of Lewis Hamilton's dressing room. Allegedly. The 10-year podium has Vettel in third, Alonso in second, and homeboy Lewis Hamilton on the top step, having won here three times, including the last two outings here. So that, plus his win in Austria, must mean that he is the favourite to take the victory again. Let's just hope it doesn't happen under a team orders situation after last week's coming together. One notable absentee from the British podium list is Jensen Button, who has never sprayed the champagne at his home race, even in his championship year 2009. So, given a better result for the McLaren last week, Stoffel van Dorn waiting in the wings and a vacancy in the cast of Top Gear, could this be the last chance to see Jensen on the podium? Let's find out with Andrew and Sean. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, you know, as... as Grand Prix go it wasn't the the worst one um I've ever seen I don't think it was particularly great there were there were moments where it threatened to be very interesting um and then weren't quite as interesting as as it might have possibly been but uh, yeah it was reasonably enjoyable I, I I agree with those sentiments you know you wake up on the Sunday morning and you see the rains come down you think okay we're on for we're on for something here this looks like this could be pretty good and then it kind of just didn't quite transpire that way. Like, like, like I agree with you. It was okay, but 
was like, oh, just we just needed another wee shower in the middle or something just to spice it up. So it just sort of petered out a little bit towards sort of the the middle towards the end of the race, which was a bit of a shame. But you know, it was Silverstone. We all love Silverstone. It's a great racetrack. So we try to keep the negatives to a minimum, I suppose. But yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, the rain comes down. You know, we think we thought, oh, this could be this could be some serious serious action here, and it just didn't quite work out that way. But it was it was hurt rather at the start by the uh, excessive use of the safety car um, on a drying track. Uh, you know, I can kind of understand if it's rained heavily and then you know it's overcast. It doesn't look like it's going to dry. Uh, you know, it's spitting with rain or all of those bits and pieces, but. Uh, it wasn't that. It, it rained heavily and bright blue sunshine was out. And I know Silverstone doesn't dry as quickly as, you know, a lot of other tracks. But, you know, it's it was only going to get better from there on. And I thought, OK, well, you know, start on the safety car, give it a couple of laps just to make sure that the drivers understand exactly what the um, what the surface is like. And then they let them get on with it. But, you know, we were stuck behind there for, what was it, five, six, seven laps? I think it was about five Five or six at the most. Um, at, at which point they, we we did two laps before everybody was in for inters, basically. Which was ludicrous, you know. It makes you wonder uh, what the, what's the point of having a wet weather tire at all. Exactly. Why not just say if it's wet enough for the wets, then the cars don't run, uh, and they can only run on inters when Charlie Whiting says they can. I, I wouldn't have started it under the safety car. You know, I would only start it under the safety car if. It's if, if it's if it's teeming down with rain at the start, which it wasn't. You know, like you say, the sun was coming out, the rain had stopped. It had rained heavily. The track was wet, but rain wasn't literally coming down at that moment. So unless it's actually coming down heavy, I'd, I'd be so reluctant to start under the safety car. If people crash at the start, so be it. You know, it's but that's racing. You know, they're all in the same boat. They're all driving on the same track. Um. We're, we're, we seem to be too quick to, oh, we're starting to the safety car, you know, in modern Formula One. Like, was it Monaco this year that they started the safety car? Uh, I think they did, yes. And, like, I, and then I was complaining, and I think the conditions in Monaco were probably worse than they were, were here, possibly. I think the rain was actually coming down. I, I don't think it had come down quite as heavy as it had in Silverstone. In Silverstone, it was an incredible deluge that had less large amounts of standing water. There wasn't the standing water at Monaco, but it was just it's continuing. still coming down, yeah. Uh, that, that would be my, um, you know, if we're talking about reasons to start behind the safety car. I think that the the amount of standing water at Silverstone made the safety car a reasonable start. But I always think that the safety car start should be so that the cars are travelling along the track, dispersing the water. So, you know, to, to, to start the... The process of, of getting a you know that dry line starting all the bits and pieces, so you know it, it shouldn't be a case that it's there until you know it's dry enough. It should be used to start that that process of getting the track in racing conditions, but then let the drivers get on with it. So, like I say, once they've gone around a, a couple of times, they all understand the levels of grip that are out there. I know they're going at slow speed, but you know they understand where the stuff is and you know what they can and can't do to some extent uh, and they've started to try and get some of the the water off of the track let's get on with it yeah absolutely like i say i wouldn't have even started under the safety car so if 
I had to start under the safety car. They've been in first lap, second lap, the absolute minimum. Yeah, that, and, and just, you know, it just frustrates me because it kind of felt like once it, once the, once the safety car went in, it wasn't long before, you know, there was a, a neat, sort of gaps opened up between first and second, then second to third, third to fourth, and it, went, it kind of evened out pretty quickly, and then we were just kind of in a lull for a little while. And I kind of felt like oh, if we hadn't had that safety car at the start, it would have made it kind of jeopardised the whole race a little bit for me. Whereas if we had started under normal conditions, we would have had, you know, uh, under an ordinary start, it would have allowed for uh, people to make up places and things like that. And I just think we would have been had a better race over the overall. So I don't know. It was just frustrating for me. Uh, as a fan of the sport, to to see the safety car at the start. Well, once it was in, um, we did actually get some some quite interesting racing going on, really, um, with that um, little bit of standing water that sort of remained for a very long time around uh, turn one. Yep. Catching, well, just about everybody, everybody in his dog yeah, out, really. Absolutely, was, everybody out, didn't it? Uh, the interesting thing for me was, not for the first time this season, it's clear... For whatever reason, I don't know what the reason is, but it's clear that when the wet when the rain comes down, Lewis just gets his Mercedes so much more hooked up than than what Nico does. You know, we've seen it earlier in the season, and we've seen it again here. Whether Lewis is just a better driver in the rain, or whether it's the way Nico sets his car up, I'm not sure. But, but either way, Lewis can get that Mercedes working in the rain so much better than what Nico can. We've seen it in Monaco, and once again here, he was able to just kick on clear at the start, which I think that's what frustrated me the most because. In those conditions, I always knew that Nico would probably lose out to Lewis on pure pace. So if we'd started under the, we hadn't sat under the safety car, it might have gave a chance for the Ferraris or Nico himself to get by Lewis off the starting line or the Red Bulls, whoever it might have been, to, to, to off the start line to, to get in and attack Lewis. Because under the safety car, it basically allowed Lewis to just use the, the, the pace advantage that he had. And Nico, because he was so slow... Held up any challengers that may have been able to he, Verstappen, etc., weren't able to get an attack list because Nico essentially was the cork in the bottle, and it just it, it was it, we, we, Lewis was denied any kind of challenge because Nico wasn't capable of providing it, and 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 Max couldn't get to couldn't get by Nico enough uh, quickly enough to to provide a challenge. So it was a bit frustrating. What was it uh, Nico said about in his car in Monaco? He said he had no confidence in it. Yeah, and no, you wonder what no kind grip. of. What, yeah. what breeds that? Do you know what I mean? Because um, whilst I understand that there's different setups for different drivers, you know, so the cars aren't exactly the same. The you know, kind of overall, there must be something in a region similar of you know performance in the car um, when they've had a whole weekend to set it up. You know, I could kind of understand you know if he hadn't run Friday or Saturday and Lewis had, and then that would be different. But it seems surprising, doesn't it, that a driver has so little confidence in the car that they feel that they, they can't, you know, push the envelope. And I wonder where that's come from. Cause it's, I mean, it's, you know, you, you're relying on memory here. So I, I don't remember him being particularly slow in the rain at other races. Well, that was what I was just about to say. My memory's awful. So going back to the days when he partnered uh, Michael and things like that, was he bad in the rain then? I can't remember my, my rain. My, so my memory is not, not particularly great, so I can't remember if this is all if this is a new thing or if this has always been an aspect in Nico's game that he's just not quick in the wet. But 
Either way, I'm normally the guy that's cheering for rain. I'm doing the rain dance every week. Now as a Nico Rosberg fan, I'm going to be praying the rain stays away because that's time and time again this season. He's proven that if the rain does come down, he's not going to be able to compete with Lewis. It's simple as that. Uh, like I say, I don't know why that is. I can't, I can't remember if he's if he's traditionally been slow in the rain or not. But I mean, Lewis has always been quick in the rain. That is, yeah, that's he's one thing. So, he's, he's always been not. I mean, he's not the you know he's not the ultimate fastest in the rain. I think there's there's probably drivers who have a, uh, a better. Uh, attack in in really wet conditions, but he's certainly no slouch in there. It doesn't um, it doesn't appear to slow slow him down. And he's been good around this racetrack in the wet as well in the past. Um, in the McLaren, do you remember the, the he was like um, like a second and a half faster than everybody on track at, at one point during the race um, when it was really really wet uh, and they were going around. So yeah, you know he's he's got form for this um, and. I think you're right. The the cork in the bottle analogy is is pretty spot on. Um, well, I mean, it, it allowed him to get was it about five or six seconds yeah. up the Whereas, grid before everybody had to pit. So even if he had a slow pit stop, you know he was l- unlikely to be troubled by anybody coming out. Um, it kind of just meant that you know if you take an equal out there, he's not he's not in the race at all. You, you just fancied that maybe Max or someone could probably get at Lewis a little bit more. So when Nico blocking that option it basically meant that after sort of lap seven or eight everybody had come in they'd stuck the enters on it all shaking itself out Lewis had a few seconds lead and we're talking like lap eight lap nine you already kind of thought well it's hard to see how Lewis can lose this from him unless he you know puts it in the wall or blows up so that just so from that kind of point of view it kind of left 40 laps remaining kind of just like the watching the inevitable it kind of took the, a little bit of fun out of the race for the battle for the lead, which I think we would have had had we not started under the safety car. So that's that was my source of frustration. That it was pretty much telegraphed right from sort of lap six or seven that, that Lewis couldn't lose the race barring something something sort of un, unexpected, unplanned happening. Well, I, I disagree with that ever so slightly because there was a point where Verstappen was making very big inroads uh, on... Um, Lewis, once he'd gotten past Rosberg, um... for me personally, there was no point where I could, I ever seen Lewis losing the race, and that that, I, that maybe if, if you you know Max was was catching, if, if I just I just couldn't see how Lewis could get beat without without sticking it in the wall. One of the drivers most affected uh, out of everybody that weekend was poor old Sebastian Vettel, who um, spent the majority of the race running outside of the points until the the you know nearer the end of the race. You know, uh, the when first, I woke up the on, first driver onto slicks. When I woke up on Sunday morning and seen that the rain had come down, I thought, "Hey, Seb's got a chance here from eleventh on the grid," but. And that didn't really transpire that way, did it? <laughs> he he came off at turn well, one more than once, didn't he? I think he was the first onto the slicks, and then was the first person that we after um, Verline to really see them go off and and take the long tour around the the outside. But I get the I, if memory serves me correct, he he took that trip maybe two or three times more. Um, he does have days like that, Vettel, where he could just be a bit erratic. It's not the first time I've seen him have. Have moments like that. I think I think it's when he's down the field and he's he's pushing so hard to try and come through the field. He has got you know 
a little a little error in him. I mean, they all do. They're all human, but definitely with Sebastian, when when he's coming through the field, I think he's possibly more likely to make a make a little error than than say a Lewis coming through the field. Uh, yeah, just it wasn't a good weekend at all for Ferrari, particularly because Kimi didn't have a good weekend either, did no, he? No, not so, not really. He he's he never up, got hooked up at all this yeah, weekend. It ended up with a better result than I think um, he, he was necessarily due. But um, there's something about that Ferrari, isn't it, in cool and changeable conditions? It, uh, it doesn't seem to come alive in the way that it has done at some of the other tracks where you know, temperature hasn't been a problem. Temperature sensitive, isn't it? It's been something we've been kind of saying about Ferrari for the last few seasons, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, the car seems to be on a knife edge in terms of what it can and can't do with the tires. Um, for one seat, you know, it was, it was a, either a season of them not being able to get temperature in the tires. So they were running the, you know, the long strategies where they um, could run the tires for longer because they weren't putting as much heat into them. Or it was the other way around that they put a lot of heating in, into them, um, but we're wrecking the tyres, so... I mean, Seb was obviously unfortunate. Another gearbox. It was a gearbox and qualifying problem that meant he took another five-place grid, five place grid penalty, which you know, doesn't help. That's two weeks in a row that he's uh, he started five places down on his where he's qualified. So, I mean, that's got... That, two weeks in a row, like... Come on, guys. Eh? It's, just, it's just frustrating as a fan, you know. I, I shouldn't really... Talk about being frustrated by reliability uh, in the presence of a, a diehard McLaren fan, but um, <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, it's just so frustrating for two weeks in a row for Sebastian to to have his weekend so fundamentally compromised by by just a simple thing like a, a gearbox problem. Uh, so that, I mean, so he's what he qualified in the top ten, drops down to eleventh. I genuinely thought when I seen the rain come, he's got a chance of making something happen here. I thought, but, um, uh, yeah, I must admit, I thought he might have been, um, you know, one of those people that was able to really just sort of turn it on. Um, I think, I think the problem possibly was that the rain came and then just stopped, so we never actually had any rain during the race. We just had a wet track that dried. Whereas if we'd had act like it coming down throughout the race, that might have might have made things change things up a little bit. But as such, they were able to just jump onto the slick tyres and then just go to the end, which is a little bit of a shame that, you know, they put on... They, they, they switched for inters after the safety car, and when, they, when the track dried and they were able to go on slicks, they, they just went straight to the end. They didn't have to stop again for for a second set of dry tyres. So, that again, that kind of took it out, took a little bit out of the race for me as well, so that when they come in, every, when everybody put their dry tyres on, it was kind of just as as you were to walk to the end of the race a little bit, you know. You had Lewis, and then you had Nico, and you had Max having their battle, and their battle was about the you know one of the, one of the more interesting things that, of the race. But you know, just I just didn't feel like there was an awful lot going on for me for a race that promised so much. I was just a bit frustrated. So let's um, <laughs> let's let's talk about the big talking point of the race. Max uh, versus Nico. Well, that, that wasn't actually what I was going to talk, that was <laughs> talk about talk at all. About. I was going to talk about, about Nico's gearbox, but well, yeah, um, but that's all intertwined into the one, the one thing. Is that's what I'm saying. That's what I mean by that. You know, the gearbox problem that he had um, obviously directly impacted the, the result of their scrap and things like that. So, well, 
Okay. Uh, only in the final reckoning, because ultimately he physically finished ahead of him on the race. So uh, what I mean is it didn't, it didn't actually materially stop him finishing ahead of Verstappen or slow him down no. enough to, to make that an issue. So, no, true. Um, yeah. Did you see how it all panned out in terms of what he actually got the penalty for? Um, was it or what part of the radio message that he got it for? Because it's it's interesting in terms of I think discussing the radio rules and stuff. Yeah, I did see it, but I forgot exactly what. So, so what was the specific sentence that they felt they needed to punish? The the radio message originally started. Uh, Nico reported a gearbox issue. He got told to put it in chassis mode zero one, I think, or zero one default, something along those lines. Um. Nico then said. Uh, should I uh, shift through seventh gear because he'd been stuck yep. in seventh gear? Yep. To which his engineer had replied, "A firm, a firm." And that was the part that got me into trouble, not the chassis mode zero one or, or or whatever it was. So telling him how to fix the technical problem, not a problem. Telling him how to drive around the the technical problem, a problem. Yes. You see what I'm saying? And what that led me to look at was, or, you know, and it was certainly being published around by everybody, was that the wording of the, the radio ban rules are that you can't give any advice that would give a driver more performance than they previously had. Okay, yeah. So, telling him how to fix his gearbox issue doesn't give him any extra performance because he had the seventh gear before the issue. It doesn't, you know, he's not making seventh gear faster. Uh, or any of those bits and pieces. Uh, so he's allowed to fix that. But telling him to skip through the seventh gear does give him a performance advantage because if he then doesn't skip through seventh gear, either there's a problem, you know, either he's going to be slower going through it or it's not going to work or any of those bits and pieces. So that's that's something that the driver has to do to not get a performance loss, which essentially works out as a performance advantage he would have had before the incident and it's a very interesting wording that um mm -hmm. mostly because it's so open to interpretation because a lot of people said well um you know surely he should you know you shouldn't have been told to fix it at all because he wouldn't have finished the race if he um if he hadn't been told how to fix it um and it's a it's a reasonable point of view in a way um, but it it's so kind of woolly in terms of how do you argue that something is a fix as opposed to you know a performance there must be lots of things that it would probably be worth taking a punt on at times um, to say this wasn't performance this was about something else uh, especially if now knowing that you're likely to receive a 10 second penalty time penalty as well not a 10 second stop go a 10 second time penalty there's got to be times where people will say well it's worth it that's true yeah very true um if they think in the grand scheme of things that what they're going to discuss is going to be worth more than 10 seconds so yeah so you know think about something like baku um 
Lewis would have been. He lo- he clearly lost more than ten seconds, didn't he? In yes. That circumstances. Over, uh, overall, certainly. Do you know what I mean? And it, uh, given the kind of race that he'd had, you know, the uh, even if he hadn't been have lost that much, it was probably worth it for the time he would have gained, as opposed to what he would have lost. If you see what I mean. Um, because obviously sticking with it, he didn't lose places because of it, but he might well have gained from from having it. So it's it, it it's so touch and go, isn't it? In terms of you know what yeah, you say a, is yeah, a fix exactly, and what yeah. you say is a uh, a simple it, performance gain to be made from making a change. It's difficult because like, yeah, there isn't a it's not a black and white. You like 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 speeding in the pit lane. Either you have or you haven't. You're going to get penalised if you have, and if you haven't, you won't get penalised. Whereas this is kind of just more down to how one man interprets a sentence more than the other, which is it's not ideal, is it? No, and I I think the interesting thing is I wonder what would have happened had we not had the two issues, one with Hamilton and one with Vettel. Uh, not Vettel, sorry, with Raikkonen in Baku, where it had pushed the radio rules right to the uh, sort of forefront of everybody's minds. So, had this been in isolation, would the stewards have been... Stewards? <laughs> Jackie, maybe. Uh, <laughs> would the stewards have been so... Um, I, don't, I, I was going to say hard, and I don't mean hard because I think a 10-second penalty is fairly reasonable... Yeah, I agree. On balance. Um, but would they have gone for the 10-second penalty had there not been this hullabaloo about the radio rules in the first place and then Charlie Whiting saying the honeymoon is over, etc., etc.? So it's it's interesting. And I, I, think, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out for the rest of the season, whether it will suddenly start being a thing that we hear more of as the team's take more of a chance knowing what the penalties are um, yep. or whether it will stay well, the same. Or, well, this is the precedent, the isn't it? Yeah, this is the precedent now. So, yeah, it's like you say, if teams, someone like Lewis and Baku, yeah, if they think that's going to, they'll, they'll take the risk of getting a 10-second penalty if there's a chance of, you know, winning the race. If, it, if you can win the race and get 10 seconds up the road. Yes, it's it's completely a null, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, the only way, other way you could do it is you'd have to try and say this was your lap time before the issue. This was your lap time once you'd done it. We then add the difference between those times yeah. to every lap that you do. That's subsequent though, to that. It? But you do you not know I mean because yeah, then you'll have teams saying, "Well, you um, couldn't do that he was only going that slow because he was yeah. concentrating so hard on what he was doing on his steering wheel. It wasn't to do with the actual issue, you know." You know, had he been driving at the peak level of the car, even with the issue, it would only have been two tenths a lap, not one and a half seconds. Yeah, that, you know, that, it's that kind of yeah, that kind of thing would just be way too impossible to to reasonably enforce that. That would turn. You know, they talk often about casual fans and Formula One's over complex and stuff for casual fans and all that kind of thing. If that kind, if that you know, if that kind of penalty was being applied post race. Some people are just going to look at maybe a bit, a bit, a bit of a joke, wouldn't it? You, well, so. you're never going to know the result of the, the exactly. race until like five days after it's done, are yeah, you? It's just silliness. Like, I mean, I don't. I, 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 we discussed it last time out, but I'm, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of the radio 
the radio clampdown as it is. But if it's here to stay, then a 10-second penalty is probably a fair result. It's probably a fair penalty. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? I was, trying to, I was trying to even it up in my mind and try and think, what if it, you know, what would be a reasonable penalty? DQ thought... every single time, would you say, regardless of what issue was fixed, whether it was something that was terminal or near terminal, not like Rosberg's, or whether it was something like, um, uh, I don't know, um, a, a switch on the thing to, to skip out of a, a mode that had gone bad, shall we say? Do you know what I mean? Um, not gonna... terminal, but very bad for your race. Um, but still related to something that's gone wrong and broken. This is this is all outside of teams just doing something for a straight performance advantage that isn't, you know, mixed. Yeah. Would I you say DQ because it's you know, the alternative is that if you hadn't done it, you wouldn't have finished, or you nearly wouldn't have finished, or you'd have you know, finished so far behind it wouldn't matter. Is it thirty seconds? Is that reasonable to cover what every I single expect. part of a race? Do you know what I mean? If it's thirty seconds, that's doesn't matter if your issue happens in the first or last part of the race, it's a big enough time penalty to affect. Whereas, do you know what I mean? If if Nico had had that issue in the first ten laps, he kind of I don't know, inverted commas gains more, yeah, because it was yeah. fixed earlier on and therefore has the rest of the race. Or this one where it was in the last twenty laps or so, sixteen laps or whatever it was, um, and therefore the gain isn't anywhere near as much. I had in my head that. After the race, I thought I was expecting twenty-five seconds. Um, I don't know why. I just sort of thought that was the the, the you know the, the gut feel that I had. I was expecting a twenty-five second time penalty. Ten. So when I seen it, it was ten because twenty-five seconds would have put him behind Danny Ricardo and would have kept him off the podium. So I don't know. I just had a, had my, my, my I felt that that would be what what I was expecting just based on how sort of angsty the language was from Charlie Whiting previously and things like about how you know after Baku and things about about and the, the fact that everybody had was because everybody had cut, kicked up such a fuss about it I kind of expected them to go 25 seconds we're setting an example here I, I, I think yeah they've been I'm surprised they weren't more harsh to set an example I think is my point I thought they would have I thought they would have wanted to try and because this was the first sort of real breach of the rule, I thought they would have wanted to say, right, this is the first breach of the rule, and boom, we're no nonsense. We're this. We're, I thought they were going to be a, a more severe than what they were. So I think Mercedes, it only cost them one place. They could probably get out there with their heads uh, and just say, okay, we, 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 you know, we lost a place that we're disappointed to lose, but it could have been a lot worse kind of thing. Uh, one of the other comments about the whole thing was um, people were suggesting that, you know, the 10 second penalty is okay for Merck um, because they can get 10 se- seconds, you know, ahead of most teams and not worry about it. Uh, and I was kind of think, you know, and uh, what people were suggesting was that that was somehow favoring Mercedes, but it, it's difficult because the penalty has got to apply to any team at any point in any well, exactly. place, isn't it? So if you, you do something overly, dr- how good the car is, you know? yeah. You know, if you do, if you do something overly drastic, like a, you know, 30 second penalty, um, for your midfield team, that's not going to drop them one or two places. That's going to drop them ten places, probably. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? They're going to end up right... It'd be like, it'd be like doing speeding in the pit lane and go, right, well, speeding in the pit lane, if you're in uh, Toro Rosso, that's five seconds. But if the Mercedes does it, that's 15 seconds because they're a better car, so they'll make up the time quicker. Like, no, 
that doesn't that, that's that's stupid you know <laughs> that doesn't make any sense it was it was part of the rationale about why i thought it was only 10 seconds and not more which like like i was thinking with you guys it might be a bit more um yeah like i definitely thought it would be a bit more so i thought they would have set an example they've obviously set an example by punishing him but I thought they would have set a more strict example, just judging by the way everybody was going on about how severe they wanted to clamp down on this. So it's definitely going to be interesting, like you say, going into the rest of the season because it seems inevitable that we'll see more. We will see more breaches of this rule, surely. Like it's going to come to the point where they might as well just not fit radios in the cars. If, you know, if, they, if like, what can they actually tell them? You know, box. You can do that on a pit board. You know, so. Well, I mean, that's that's the only thing to say, isn't it? Is that um, if you have any mechanical issue that can be sorted, you know, that way, the driver has to box to do it. Then you can tell them anything that you want because they're in the pits and not on track. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's fine because they'll have taken the, the penalty of having to have come into the pits to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even as a drive through, even if they did it as they were, you know, crawling through the pits on the pit lane speed limiter it would that 20 seconds average is probably yes. enough isn't it to say absolutely yeah that's enough know, of a, a penalization you know you've got to make up what however long it takes you in the pits plus stopping etc whatever you're going to do then that's fine at least then you've got a halfway house haven't you to say you you know if the driver's on track they you can't tell them anything in the pits you can tell them whatever you like because it's not the racetrack and you know that's that's fair then that yep. you're not um you can't coach the driver at all can you from the pits it's not there's no point where any radio message is going to be worth telling them stuff in the pits unless it's absolutely vital so there you go we've we've worked out a way around it already <laughs> <laughs> i don't understand how how come it can take so long, really? Uh, so back to the, back to the race. Um, Should we talk about Max? Yes, driver of the day for most people, and I think that was probably fair enough. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely had another, and not not just driving well, but comprehensively beating his teammate, who's a highly regarded man in Daniel Ricciardo. So, but he outqualified him as well for the first time this season. So, um, that's a an interesting, uh, you know sort of factoid there really that um things are have... we all um we all kind of admitting now that max Verstappen's probably the real deal <laughs> uh, i'm starting to believe it um <laughs> well, well you know you can only really judge fully on the end of the season can't you You've got to see what he's like when all the races are done and you can average average out his performances because you know it could be that these first few races for red bull are his honeymoon period and so. the rest of the season he ends up being as you know incident prone as as daniel was for that whilst that is possible i don't think it doesn't it seem likely though does it i'm genuinely every time i watch him i think i'm becoming more and more Sweet on him, and every time I see him, I think, yeah, you know what? It's taken. My, he's 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 been a slow burner on me, and me me getting to become a fan of his. But when he won in Spain, that was the first I really, really, truly sat and take notice. And now since then, uh, a few more good drives since then, I am I'm becoming quite convinced that he is probably the real deal. And the way I look at it is, would Danny Fiat have 
won that race in Spain and would Danny Fiat finish second this weekend in Silverstone in the exact same car? But probably not, really. Like I think he's proven that they've made the right decision and that say what you like about how young he is and experience and stuff, but he's clearly, clearly got got the talent. So, like you say, driver of the day for a lot of people can't couldn't argue with anybody who who said that another another solid drive, good move to get past Rosberg, missed out, uh, lost the battle again onto Rosberg on track, but at least we did see a good, you know, man for man battle for a while, and obviously ultimately it was decided in the stewards room, but even before that we did see a good a good on track battle between the pair. Uh, it was good stuff because obviously Lewis was so far down the road that it was good that we had something going on. As we've already discussed at length, just a shame that it ultimately ended in the in the stewards room. But well played, Max. He's uh, really really showing stuff. Oh, and I guess the converse thing of that is, um, well, what's kind of happened to Ricardo over the last few races? You know, at, at Monaco, everybody was um, well, that's raving, right. saying that he was that he was going to be in the Ferrari, spell, wasn't he? He did that wee hot spell of being right on form, and then obviously they f- they had the post Monaco Daniel Ricciardo kind of upset with the Red Bull strategies and pit crews and whatever else. He missed out on a, a race win or two that he felt he should have had, and it's kind of went downhill from there a little bit in the last few few races. I mean, what 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 have we got in the last three three? So we had he had his second in Monaco. The, the Spanish race, you could have argued that he probably should have won as well, given if the strategy had worked out a little bit better in his favour. Yep. So he could have easily have won Spain and Monaco back-to-back, and, then, and since then he's not had a podium in four races. His best position's been fourth. So Is that just the effect of having, you know, such terrible fortune that it just it's just knocked the stuffing out of him? I mean, it's, it's very possible. Or you could just argue that you know, Canada, Austria, Silverstone. Are they truly Red Bull suited tracks? Canada, I wouldn't say so. Austria, mm, wouldn't Can- say so. Well, no, but they were they weren't they weren't mass- massively far off the pace in uh, Austria as much as they have been, um, and certainly they were okay around Silverstone, which again wouldn't necessarily have been one of their favourite tracks. I wouldn't have thought. Um, so, and you can't say that at the same time that Max is doing well. Do you know what I mean? It's of course no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just playing devil's advocate, but um, yeah, it's uh, not quite sure what's happened to Ricardo. One good thing on them, you would expect him to be decent in Hungary. He's won there before, hasn't he, Daniel? So uh, needs a big weekend coming up, definitely, just to stamp his authority back on that team because a young pup in Max Verstappen's come in there and. You know, Danny's the man leading that team. He's the experienced guy. And if he starts getting shown up, if this run of form that's lasted two or three races becomes five, six, seven, eight, nine races towards the end of the season, people are going to stop looking at him as a team leader and start looking at Max as a team leader. So you need you need Danny Rick to be, he needs Hungary to be stamping his authority because it's a track that he goes, he should in theory go well and he's won there in the past. It's a big opportunity for him to just remind everybody, hey, I'm still here while you're talking about Max. I was just looking at the the results. In, in a lot of ways, it, it nearly goes two by two, really. Um, 
I think it shows the ultimate race order that really happened, you know, in terms of what, what cars are on it. Two Mercedes and then two Red Bulls. Raikkonen in fifth in the Ferrari, and I think you'd have to suggest that had Vettel not had quite so many offs, he would have been a lot closer to that, you know, that placing. Um, so Ferrari really third best car, I think, around. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. That's certainly in Silverstone. I mean, they were out-qualified by the Red Bulls, I think, and they were uh, comprehensively beaten in the race. Obviously, Vettel had his own issues with the gearbox and stuff, but yeah, like no doubt about it, it was clearly Red Bull had the upper hand on the Ferraris this weekend for sure. Thirty seconds ahead of Raikkonen, Ricardo in you know in fourth. That's that's some margin, really, isn't it? For not just that, but they qualified third and fourth fairly comprehensively ahead of them, so they cl- they clearly just had the the bigger package, uh, the better package this weekend. Which you know, on the face of it, you wouldn't necessarily have thought that, would you? Would you have looked at Silverstone as a racetrack and went... It's not one of Red Bull's sort of favourite haunts, you know? is it, really, in I think you would have sort of thought, that would have just on the face of it, without thinking, that Ferrari would have been the the one that you would have leaned to there. So, not ideal for them. What do you... I mean, we've discussed Red Bull. What, what, what are, what's wrong with Ferrari, then? Why are they... What, what, where's the lack of pace coming from in the last couple of weeks? What do you think? Um... Oh, it's, Ferrari always such an, an enigma in terms of <laughs> their developmental process. It's sometimes very easy to see in a team where where the car goes and and what its strengths and weaknesses are. And the the Ferrari just seems to be this sort of kind of curate's egg of sometimes it's just right on and able to really push. Um, the Mercedes harder than I think the Red Bull has been able to push Mercedes. If you see what I mean, when it, if you talk about the team that's really given Mercedes the most to think about, I think it's still Ferrari. But that sort of knife edge performance has put them in the position where, when the car's not on it, it's actually slightly off it. If if anything, it, yeah. you know, it, it loses performance. In a, in a significant manner um, compared to the Red Bull which I think has probably been more consistent um, it, and it's the the relative performance of other cars to it that determine whether it's the second best car on the grid or the third best car on the grid um, or occasionally the fourth best car on the grid when Force India have really uh, hooked it up um, I it's really difficult because in you know it's um oh, what's the name of the ferrari designer i was going to say james allen and i don't mean james allen at all <laughs> um it's an english guy Sean. rory Byrne? no nope um yeah. they interview him quite often after the, the race <laughs> was he the ferrari technical yeah technical somebody he was with somebody else and they poached him back. I think he went to either Mercedes or Red Bull and then they, or even McLaren maybe, and then they poached him back. Um, oh. Let's have a look. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have a look now. Uh, 
can't believe I can't remember what his name is. As soon as I found out. Um, James Allison. James Allison. James a- Allison. Yeah. Or Allison, possibly. <sighs> right, we got that. So yeah, James Allison, yeah. Um, it's clear that since he's come back onto the onto the Ferrari team, he's improved them in, in some areas that they were clearly weak on. But I I don't know if what he's done I mean it might not just be him it's really difficult to, to pin it on one person uh, but I, I just wonder if, if some of the processes in Ferrari are, are a little bit disparate uh, and not working together in the best way possible That that's what that car feels like it, it doesn't it feel like there's good bits on it and but just maybe not the bits don't all work together so they they're good in some bits, but then when you have to try and hook all of those things together to make one really good thing, it's not quite done it. I don't know. I I don't know either, to be honest. Uh, it's it, it feels a bit like Groundhog Day with Ferrari, you know, for the last five years, six years, seven years, possibly even longer. It's just been a case of oh, we might win the odd race, we'll probably get a few podiums. Generally, going to be the second best team. You know, they were the second best team to Red Bull when Vettel was dominating. Mercedes have taken over at dominance and Ferrari are in the exact same position, just behind a different dominant team. You know, it's just a bit kind of like, why are you guys not building the dominant car? You know, it's not like you don't have the resources. So what exactly is going on internally in the structure of that team that's that's stopping it? Because it's obviously not a financial thing and it's not a talent in terms of who's in the car thing either, because you've had Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel. So you've got the talent there. You've got the finances. You've got the backing. You've got everything you could possibly want in the history. It's just not quite working. And it's not like it's not quite working this season or the last couple of seasons in the way that it hasn't quite worked out for Red Bull in the last season or two. It's not working to the point now where it's like, you know, give it another year or two, it's going to be 10 years, you know. It's going to almost 10 years since Kimi Raikkonen won the World Championship, you know. So... And you'd that's have to not, say that that that's Ferrari just, wasn't even necessarily very good. Know, the, the, the best <laughs> Ferrari ever designed. Now, so I mean, you've got McLaren who are in the doldrums, but you know, there's, you can see there's a tangible reason for that, and you can point to it and go, "This is why they're not doing so well right now." But this is what they're doing to fix it. With Ferrari, it's kind of just a case of, eh, you know, what's happening? No, we're not really sure. You know, we're just existing in that second to third place spot, and someone might usurp us. And someone might drop back from us, but we're going to just be right here the whole time, just existing in that sort of leader of the opposition role without ever moving from it. And it's a bit frustrating <laughs> as a fan. I like, I like that analogy, yes. They, they do seem like a fairly sort of powerless shadow cabinet of Formula exactly One at the moment, don't they? And, and it's like the government's been booted out in Red Bull, and instead of them stepping up, some new party in Mercedes has come on the block and taken right over from them. And Ferrari have just sat in the exact same position and not done anything about it. So it's like, well, come on, guys. You know, at some point, it, as I say, like Red Bull, McLaren, they've had their off seasons the last couple of years. But you know, this is we're getting on nearly ten years now since Ferrari really won anything. So we need. I mean, 
I don't know the stats, but if I went through and found out how many Grand Prix victories they've won since Kimi Raikkonen won his World Championship, I bet it would be depressingly low. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'd have had the 2008 season with, with Massa, wouldn't they? Would have been their, their last great season of picking up True. a lot of wins. Yeah. But, yeah, you're that right. That was the last time they were... You know, Fernando had a couple of times where he was pushing Seb towards for the for the championship and picking up race victories, but it never felt like they were that you expected them to win Grand Prix week in week out. Well, interestingly, I've, there's been reports of Seb already being quite unhappy in a very Fernando Alonso esque way. And with, I can believe that. Yeah, I can believe that. You know, and it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you look at the difference. Here is that you know Alonso joined Ferrari after a you know a good period of success and um, stuff in in other teams later on in his career really if you if you see what I mean Seb is still so young and with so much time ahead um, I can imagine that there's a sort of pressure on him there to be like well look you know these are I am at my peak as a Formula One driver now. This is really, yep. you know, I have experience as well as the, the you know, raw talent, raw minerals to uh, to do this. Um, and, I, and I can't do it. And, you know, Alonso could f- probably feel f- fairly happy in about where he was and maybe sticking it out and doing all the bits and pieces because he'd driven for so many other teams. But, you know, this is Seb's second team ever. In you know, in Formula because Toro Ross and Rebel essentially equate to being the same thing. I'm not going to say that as really two different teams. Um, and you want to see success, don't you? Like, like quickly when those things coming before you feel like it's it's kind of passed you by. Um, I mean, Seb got three victories last season. But you never felt like Ferrari were in a position to be challenging for victories. You know, they kind of fell into their lap almost when Mercedes trod on themselves. Or, you know, there's a couple of weeks like Singapore last year where the Mercedes just for some reason weren't quite on it and Ferrari capitalised. But that was last year, three victories. Before the season before that, no victories at all. Season before that, only two victories. This season, zero victories. So you're looking at five victories in sort of four seasons. You know, it's just over one a year on average. I mean, that that's not good enough. It's not nearly good enough. Don't no, and if you you know you you look at it and it, it rather validates the logic of um, you know, uh, Fernando saying, "Look, five years the project hasn't moved on. I'm going to move to a different project and just roll the dice, wait yeah. and see how it goes because there's a chance." that I don't see, you know, sort of happening in here. And, you know, people might say, oh, well, but, you know, Seds picking up podiums and bits and pieces. But you, you can't tell me that the drivers at the real sharp end, you know, picking up podiums and stuff is all right if you're a, you know, you're a Grosjean or a, um, I don't know, Danny K- Danny Kvyat in a, in a Red Bull or something like that. You're not really viewed as a sort of serious contender for the world title each year then it's fine to pick up podiums and points and stuff like that and say well look i'm you know i'm a good formula one driver but if you're if you're at that sharp end you know picking up three victories in 
two years or however many it, 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 it is for that period of time that said's been in the car it just isn't good enough is it it's it is no different than really finishing lower down in a mclaren honda i mean it's probably better than it probably feels better than finishing lower down in a mclaren honda but in terms of when the season's over when you're not driving and you look back at it and look at what the achievement is it's pretty much the same isn't it they're not winning the title are they and at the end of the day, if you're not first, you're not anything. So it's the same as finishing second in a boxing match, isn't it? You might exactly. can't say, "Oh well, you know, I was there," but you're still the guy that's been put on his ass, and <laughs> that's all that people are going to remember. That you know, I mean, I guess if they remember at all. I guess next season we've got all these regulation changes. They've got a fresh start, all that kind of thing. If they turn up next season with a car that is just consistently third and fourth on the grid. And may pick up one or two race victories in a season. Then I don't. I don't know what something has changed. Don't ask me what has to change, but something has to change. Well, and there's because been quite a lot of changes. It's a massive isn't there, really? opportunity next season to to completely change the game, and and you know they're getting what they wanted. You know they get in the, the regulation changes and stuff. So do or die, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, who else was... Uh, you know had a good weekend this weekend? Well, Force India, Sergio really. Sergio Perez. And, Sergio Perez. And Nico Hockenberg, realistically. And Nico, Nico seventh, yeah. Perez, um, Perez made the strategy fourth, work. He? Yeah, he made the strategy work with the tyres and the rain and the safety car. Uh, virtual safety car comes out, gets his tyres on at the right time, manages to get it up in fourth. Doesn't have the pace to, to compete with the uh, the big guns, if you like, but a very, very solid weekend, for sure. For Cindia, I would say it every week, you know, despite all their mythical financial troubles that we hear about all the time and things like that, still putting in the results, the car's still going well. Cracking job. Perez, again, I'm, I've talked to him up big time last time out, saying that he's the man for the, the promotion. If I drive it, the top table becomes available, and he's done his, uh, done his case no harm again this weekend. And a good result for Hulkenberg as well, who'd um, and that know. catastrophic weekend in uh, yeah. in Austria, didn't he? Just went backwards and backwards and backwards, the poor guy. But yeah, good, good, good stuff again. Yeah, good, good stuff for the Force India boys. I like both of those guys. I'm so glad that they're that they're both doing well. Toro also had a fairly good weekend, I think, for them as well. Um, you know, yeah, again, for if sure. We're, if we if we're kind of looking that people were just slightly out of place, really they finished, you know, probably. Um, ninth, tenth, if 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 Vettel finishes um, around where Raikkonen is, which I think is very good for Toro Rosso around Silverstone. Um, I mean, you got you got Carlos there in eighth, another cracking driver. He's another one that we've been talking talking up a lot. Mm, and yeah. and and the and the, the man, the, the man who's becoming a bit of a, a last lap podcast legend, <laughs> Danny Kvyat, um, in tenth, which is finally a decent result for him, and and ultimately. Uh, a double points finish, which is, uh, you know, for Toro Rosso, teams like Toro Rosso, teams like Force India, any double points finish, you have to say, that's a good job, guys. Well done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but Science again, continue to continue to impress. I know you're a huge fan of him. Uh, I, I am. I, I do like him a lot. Um, it was interesting to hear Martin Brundle uh, talking about Kimi Raikkonen signing a new contract for Ferrari. Yeah. Um, did I not say he would? By the way, <laughs> you did. You very much did. 
Yes. I would say. Kudos for predicting that one. <laughs> but he was suggesting that, um, you know, nothing is really going to change at, at Ferrari by keeping Vettel and Raikkonen. Um, and whilst he, you know, whilst we all love Kimi, and it's not yes, a case right. of wanting yes. to see Kimi off the grid, it would be more exciting to see a team of Vettel and signs and see what that did to the dynamic of a team with, you know... Completely, completely agree, but I want it to be Vettel and Perez, but, complete, but completely agree um, with, the, with the ideology and the, and the thought process behind it. Uh, it's the same argument I've been having with Williams all season in Massa, you know, and why I don't want Jensen Button to just go in there, because it doesn't really change much in terms of the dynamics of the team. I want to see a young hotshot who's got something to prove getting a promotion going in there. I don't want to see an experienced driver taking a sideways step. And it's the, I so completely agree with the ideology uh, behind behind the comments there about Raikkonen, totally. Uh, but he's kind of the safe option, don't you feel, for Ferrari? You well, know? ultimately, you know, yes. You, you know what you're going to get out of him, but I just wonder if that's really what um, Ferrari really need right now. I wonder if they just need, you know, somebody else providing a counterpoint to Sebastian, who's driven a type of car, you know, since his inception in Formula One. And you just wonder how having driven newly designed cars that have a particular feel about them obviously and the way that they work and what their strengths and weaknesses are uh, and whether you know what Seb asks is not in the same lexicon as what Ferrari are used to trying to produce and whether if they had somebody else coming in with different experience different you know different credentials whether that might you know change how the car is produced and maybe crack this lull in a form that they've had for, for so long. Yeah. Uh, I can't really argue with that. I'm, I'm a bit kind of, I'm a bit 50, 50 with this one. I, because we're, as you say, we, who doesn't love Kimi Raikkonen, you know? Uh, but they've kind of went from, you know, think of the last 10 years at Ferrari, they had Massa and Alonso, then they had Kimi and Alonso. Now you got Kimi and Vettel. Then they had Kimi and Massa, briefly. It might be good to stick someone, you know, and kind of in the way that when they originally put Massa in the car way, way back in like 2006, and you plucked yeah. him out of Sauber, and he had someone to prove, and he came in, and he was a partner, Michael Schumacher of all people, and you know, and he took won, on the mantle, didn't he? Really? Yeah, and he won a couple of races in his first season in Ferrari. Uh, you know, and 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 because he, he's this young, hungry driver who wanted to take the bull by the horns and show that he he belonged, and as, yeah, so to that extent, it might be worth doing something again here. You know, you've got Vettel playing the Michael Schumacher role, and then you have got someone like uh, like you say, like Sainz or Perez or someone like playing the 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 young the young massa role of of yesteryear. So yeah. <sighs> Like I, said, I love Kimmy, but yeah, this probably probably was the right time to to make the change. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd have found less people being let. You know, it wouldn't have been quite so badly received as it mm. might have been a couple of years ago when people really wanted to see him on there. Yep. 
on the Absolutely. grid. I think now people are are ready to see something different from from Ferrari. Absolutely. So speaking of lulls in form, two teams coming up now who might just kind of fit into that bracket. I think uh, Williams and McLaren, who appear to have turned up with a fairly similar car, <laughs> it would seem. Um, Williams were off pace all weekend from start to finish. The McLarens, I think, probably are feeling out of the two more aggrieved or more upset by this weekend because they clearly had the pace to be somewhere around the Toro Rosso level. Um, and, well, they stuffed it. There's not really <laughs> not really a finer point around. They pitted at all the wrong times. Um, they... Um, Fernando was nearly in the wall, was he not? Yep. He, and, uh, well, he that was well an amazing do, save. He did. I was going to say he did well to, st- to still be in the race. Like I thought that was that was game set and match for for Fernando at that point. Um, Fernando qualified down after issues with his, you know, um, with his quali. Um, uh, sorry, no. Uh, it's JB. JB. Yeah, he, my... he knocked out in uh, knocked out in Q one. Q one because his rear wing came off. I mean, he that was, was mental as well. That was. That was strange. I wanted to talk about that, but it kind of got overshadowed by the radio thing. But the whole mess of um, them not applying track limits all over yeah. the place, and it was yeah. quite clear people were going on faster laps whilst going offline at different corners that didn't happen to be the four corners that were mentioned in the driver's briefing. It's just lunacy. You have track limits, enforce them. If somebody you know is going faster and they're cutting it, just because you haven't identified the corner first, shouldn't be a, a reason to say no uh exactly. you know and it just it irritated me that they couldn't make that decision in between the qualifyings as well yeah but we're, we're waiting about like there was nobody knew whether it was jb or whether it was kevin magnuson that was in into the next round of qualifying it's just madness it's just it, i don't <laughs> understand why they couldn't have just Q2 back a bit. Just say Q2 will start yeah. 10 minutes later whilst five, we're making five this decision. Five minutes while we decide, yeah, like how hard would it have been? <laughs> they do it. If, you know, if, if, if a session was red flagged and they were repairing the barriers, they'd have waited for however long it takes to do. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So. And and JB, poor JB, was sat in the garage not even able to com- to even attempt a lap because of his tech problem. Um, well, there was, you say it was the rear wing, wasn't it? Yeah. So. Yeah. So he, he didn't even get an opportunity to, to put a lap down. Well, he put he put he put a lap down, but he get, didn't get an opportunity for a second lap, which was ultimately the, the important one. So, yep. uh, yeah, I mean, not like you say, not great for McLaren, not their finest weekend. From you know, because they were kind of getting somewhere, weren't they, the last couple of weeks? It's I think you know if you look at where Alonso was and what he was doing before the pit stops, it was looking all right for them. I you know I think they really could have. Could you know? Could have quite easily been uh, in the top end of the points, um, but you know they just didn't do anything right at all. Do you know what I mean? It was just calling the drivers in at the wrong time, getting them out at the wrong time, uh, and ultimately that's that's you, you know you end up twelfth and thirteenth when that happens on on a on a day when they, you know, they might well have shined against other teams, um, they certainly didn't. Somebody who very, very diff- definitely didn't shine was Valtteri Bottas in fourteenth. I can see that he's down here on fourteenth on the classifications, and I'm sitting there thinking, how did he end up so far down the field? What exactly happened to Bottas? I can't seem to remember. I don't really remember any. I think he, <laughs> he he had an excursion, like a lot of people, I think, but I don't, 
I don't remember him doing anything massive, but then I'd say the same thing about Massa. Massa only ended up in 11th because they pitted him late on um, and stuck him on a fresh pair of boots. That's because he was he was down lower. Um, they pitted him and, you know, whilst everybody else was hanging on to their their um, medium tyres, they stuck a set of softs on him uh, and he made up about three places in the last sort of uh, last few laps. But, I mean, I seem to remember Bottas battling with the with the Sauber's and things like that. So they obviously just didn't have any pace in that car, that and and you know, in those tricky conditions and stuff, which you know, it's not really that big of a surprise for the Williams. Uh, just the way that car sort of set up, you can I can kind of understand why it's struggled in in the, in the changeable conditions on a. On a power track with decent weather, um, it's a good car. It just seems that if you take away one of those two things, yeah, it's not a very good car. Yeah, and it's and it's so not a good car. You know, it's not just like talk about the Ferrari, but at least come rain, come shine, all the different tracks, Ferrari will just be hello, hello. We're going to finish fourth. You know, we're just going to be fourth or fifth or third all the time, and it's it's generally pretty consistent. When even when it's not our day, we're still going to be in the top six. Williams will either be challenging for the podium or they'll be, as we've seen this weekend, 14th, 15th, whatever. So, uh, yeah. Not good. Not good. Next season again, I'm clutching clutching to next season's regulation changes for all these teams in the doldrums. They need big winter. Big winter. I say it every week, big winter for these guys, especially mm. Williams. Uh, the last two places were uh, Felipe Nasa in the Sauber and then Gutierrez in the Haas. Cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> finished by dint of finishing is is the way that I'd put that, which means they finished in those places because other people probably didn't finish. Um, those DNFs included both Renaults. Um, Palmer, who had a stop-go penalty for not putting on one of his tyres. Huh. Yeah, I see now. Down the pit lane, mine, and they wheeled them back up, didn't they? Yep. Uh, yeah. Magnuson retired on the penultimate lap, so I'm assuming that's a uh, retire the car, strap some new bits in it for Hungary. Yep. As opposed to an actual full-on breakdown. Uh, Harriento and Verline both uh, essentially spun and crashed. Um, I, have to, I have to assume that's just because that manor has. If there's any car that's going to be tricky, course, tri- yeah, tricky to drive in those conditions, it's going to be the manor. We all know the manors got a bit of grunt in it this season with a Mercedes engine in the back and it is capable of scoring points as we've seen from Pascal but in the tricky conditions it can't be a fun car to drive it's all power and no downforce so (laughs) not not particularly surprising that two inexperienced drivers have been a a low downforce car this weekend that that can't come as a shock to many people Uh, Grosjean stopped Um, I can't remember why um, oh, I really can't remember why. Uh, and poor old Marcus Ericsson had a uh, a weekend. I suspect he is uh, quite willing to forget after a really big shunt in practice. Uh, sent him to the hospital. Didn't take part in qualifying uh, and got only a few laps under his belt before his uh, man his uh, Salver gave up on him and he retired. Um, mysterious backers apparently for Salver. To, is that to right? Come is and that... save them. I've hear reports here and there 
that um, yeah, somebody has come in and spent some dosh to take a, a share of the company. Well, they goddamn need it, don't they? So can only hope for their sake that that's true. Well, it's, it's very interesting <laughs> that even Felipe Nazar is saying that he, he's only going to stay on for 2017 if he can see that there's something to... Uh, something worth believing in the Sauber project. You know, I think it's when, pretty grim. grim <laughs> yeah, when your rookie fears, driver is saying, I really don't know whether it's worth driving a Sauber in 2017, <laughs> you've got to like, hmm. Okay then. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that one works out for him. Um, it was Silverstone testing this week. Um, Indeed. A few so young drivers get an opportunity and things like that. Yeah, we had... Um, was it uh, uh, Ferrucci, uh, Ocon? Um, uh, what was the other guy's name? Um, Alex Lynn got a shot. Alex Lynn. Um, that's the one I was thinking of. Uh, Van Dorn did. Um, well, there was some guy. Um, I really can't remember what his name was. Um, you know, I'm going to real quick look and see if I can... Uh, if I can work out who it was. Um, mm, oh, Pierre Gasly. Oh, of uh, course, yeah. From He's GP2. in Red Bull, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Sergei Sorokin. That was the guy I was thinking of. Uh, Renault. Yeah. Uh, so pl- plenty of young talent out there, all itching for seats that they're not going to get. <laughs> um and we're starting to hear teams start talking about giving up on their 2016 cars and... Well, I was, I was thinking that. I was thinking that when we were discussing the likes of Ferrari earlier. It's getting to that stage in the season where, yeah, that's going to start happening. And pff, can't really blame them, especially with regulation changes and stuff coming into effect. They're going to need to design a good car next season. Can't really blame them when, you know, Mercedes have the title this season. It's simple as that, you know. You can continue to develop this car, but ultimately the only time they're going to win a race with it is if Mercedes trip over each other. So, yeah, can't really can't really have too many complaints if they start doing that. Uh, Force India are the first to officially announce it. Um, they are not going to develop the 2016 Force India, and they're concentrating on next year. Uh, which is interesting, given that they've done so well this year. You thought that that yeah. might have prompted them to do it, but I guess they're they're probably looking at it from a financial point of view that if they've got a decent starting point now, um, it's probably not worth developing that further down the line for much more, you know, for a, for tenths of games if they can spend the time developing yeah. a 2017 no, car. Can't really um, argue. No. Magnussen has asked that Renault give up on the 2016 car and focus on 2017, <laughs> which I think is an entirely reasonable <laughs> request given how yep. terrible that car is. Um yeah, they're not going to do anything with that car miraculous before the end of the season, I don't think. Uh, so. Is that car, it doesn't have a point yet, does it? So. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, does Magnussen scored thought... some points. Um, got that? a seventh place, I think, somewhere. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, they're not on zero point. Nah, you're right. Yeah, my bad. Sorry, Renault guys. I know. Uh, yeah, you have sorry. to apologise to Carly, I'm afraid. That's what I mean. So, sorry to Renault fans out there. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, they're not going to develop that car any further. What's the point? You know, it's a, it's the, we've discussed it in the past, but you know they were given such little time in the winter to actually get themselves in order with the takeover and things that this season was always going to be a write-off, and it's all about next season for them. So you cannot um, 
cannot blame them for looking to next season. And it's good that Kev's already thinking about next season as well. Like, I want to see a big 2017 from Kevin Magnussen. And lastly, to, to round everything off, uh, the Halo project got its second outing. Um, still no real love for it in the F1 community for yep. good reason. Um, it's, a, it's an inelegant solution to a question that uh, that needs answering, um, but I don't know why it was felt by the FII that they had to say, and next year it will be answered by this. I'm not sure why we couldn't have spent the time yeah, to get the situation right, you know, yeah. it's a big, it's a big thing. It's a big deal. We need to be, you got to get it right. You know, you can't rush it. And everybody is kind of sort of said that they thought that the, um, uh, what's it? Um, aero screen, the Red Bull solution looked better and, uh, and might well serve a better purpose on the basis that, um, it's going to be better for protecting against small debris, such as the Felipe Massa spring, rather yep. than the halo, which is only going to really prevent large objects. I know that the the screen has the um, has the disadvantage of, of, of potentially rain and visibility and stuff, but um, I think all things are uh, all things are overcome if you spend the time doing it, but because they've announced that the halos, the way they're going to go for everything seems to have stopped on the aero screen. And I think that's a, that's a shame. Either that, or it would have been nice for them to have said, um, you have a choice. You can either use the hero, hello, halo or the, uh, aero screen and see which one is best. <laughs> see which one the, the teams actually end up choosing. But, uh, anyway, uh, so that's that. Really, uh, just a, a lot of the teams have come out and said that uh, I think Rebel has officially said that they won't support if if it comes to the fact that they have that they ask the teams to vote on whether to accept it or not. Rebel has said that they won't vote for it. I think Steiner at Haas has said that they probably would do the same. I would be unsurprised if a few other teams didn't join in and, and suggest yeah, once that... one once one goes, they'll probably all follow. You'll find and the um... yeah, I mean. I, I don't like it. Like, it's not for me. Uh, the aero screen was uh, the best of the solutions that they did come up with, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not for it. No, 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 me it either. Looks, uh, I don't. It seemed it seemed a bit difficult to get out of the car with it as well because it got in the way and you couldn't seem to hold on to it. Whereas I thought that the Aero screen still allowed the drivers to kind of be able to to push themselves up in the way yeah. that they were used to. Yeah, um, and and you know I think you know it's all good testing these kind of things, just doing a couple of laps and them. But when you're in twenty two car racecraft, you know, uh, I I don't know how how it works from a visibility point of view, but I can't help but feel that once they're actually driving them flat out in a, in a Grand Prix, drivers might say like these things are just not 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 good so we'll see what happens Palm, yeah. Julian Palmer is another one I think that's come out and said let's not have it yeah and obviously Lewis Hamilton was on the the nope train yeah. <laughs> before everybody else um, 
Uh, say, what, say what you like about Lewis, but he does speak his mind with regards to that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think th- there's two sides to it, really. There's, there's the, the aesthetic side, which is terrible. But I think, I think the question that it's, it's trying to answer is, is a valid one that needs I- to be looked at. That if, if there is a way of preventing things, even if they're fairly small in chance, you know, I think you've got to, got to attempt to answer it. But it feels like we haven't tried hard enough to evaluate our answers as yet. Yeah, it's, it, it does. It seems like they've tried to come up with something overnight, and it's not something that you can just click your fingers and here's the solution. You know, they're going to have to take your time and come up with the correct solution. So I think that takes us rather nicely to the end of the podcast uh, for the British Grand Prix episode. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to us. Um, if you want to catch up with anything that we're doing, uh, you can go over to our website, which is www.lastlappodcast.co.uk. You can catch us on Twitter at Last Lap Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Last Lap Podcast or check out any of our links uh, to any of our Facebook, Twitters and stuff from the website or from Twitter or from Facebook itself. Um, and again, I've been Andrew Pearson. Sean Gray has been your co-host. And we'll thank you very much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye.